January 1st, 2014. The number 16 ranked LSU Tigers and the unranked Iowa Hawkeyes faced off in the Outback Bowl. 51,000 people were in attendance, with many more watching at home on ESPN. A lot of those people more than likely had a bet on the game. The bookmakers had made LSU a seven and a half point favorite, meaning if you wanted to bet on LSU, they would need to win by at least eight points to cover the spread. And if you bet on Iowa, they could lose by as many as seven and you could still win. Now a half point may not seem like a big deal, but it sure feels like a big deal when a game ends up being decided by a single touchdown. And the line doesn't end up on that half a point for no good reason. In fact, that half a point that was likely to ruin a lot of gamblers' days was only there because of a guy in New Jersey they called Joey Toons. This is the story of Joey Fortuna, the man who moves lines with a single bet. From the Ringer Podcast Network, my name is David Hill, and this is Gamblers. Gamblers is brought to you by FanDuel Sportsbook, the official sports betting partner of the Ringer Podcast Network. Looking for a better way to bet on your favorite sports online? With FanDuel Sportsbook, there are more ways to bet. If you can dream it, you can probably bet it through FanDuel Sportsbook. FanDuel offers spreads, parlays, money lines, over-under, props, and in-game bets all in an easy-to-use app. Also, there are more ways to cash out. When you win, you can receive your winnings in your bank account in as little as 48 hours through a safe and secure process. Check out FanDuel Sportsbook app today to experience sports betting the way it always should have been. FanDuel, more ways to win. Must be 21 plus and present in New Jersey, Pennsylvania, West Virginia, Indiana, or Colorado. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or in West Virginia, visit www.1800gambler.net. In Indiana, call 1-800-9-WITH-IT or in Colorado, call 1-800-522-4700. I was born in um, South Philly. So all of my schooling was done in um, South Jersey. We moved right over to Bridge in South Jersey. My dad worked uh, a casino dealer, so he was involved in sports, and uh, he booked a little bit in South Philly and then became a dealer. So some sort of gambling was in the house, although he wasn't a big gambler himself. Joey's father was a former baseball prodigy. And Joey thought for a while he'd follow in his father's footsteps. As a kid in the 1990s, Joey played sports in school and was an avid sports fan. He memorized baseball lineups. He traded basketball cards. As a teenager, when Joey took a job at a local pizzeria, he found that a lot of the customers were big sports fans too. The guys in the restaurant were constantly talking sports. But they weren't just sitting around whining about the latest Eagles loss or arguing over who the best players were. They were placing and taking bets. The pizzeria was the neighborhood sports book. The guy who ran the store was a bookie. And, and then, you know, I kind of just fit in. Everybody in the pizza shop would gamble there and people would drop off money and, and collect. Today, sports betting is legal and regulated in New Jersey, as well as 22 other states. But in the 1990s, it was still against the law everywhere but Nevada. So if you were one of the 115 million Americans who bet on sports back then, you more than likely were part of the $20 billion bet illegally with bookies. Bookie is short for bookmaker, which is someone who offers and accepts bets on sports. It's an old British term that once referred literally to the book that gamblers' names were written in. Joey's Pizzeria was a book, one of any number of books in New Jersey where someone could get a bet down on a game. In a lot of East Coast cities, betting on sports was just a fact of life legal or not it's hard for me to really get a grasp of like middle america or how they can't find bookies because i've had accounts my whole life i mean i could walk 100 feet and probably find three so you know i started betting and i was dumb at first you know like anybody else i remember playing three team parlays and 
crazy odds and wasn't really about the numbers. It was about the teams and that type of thing. Young Joey, like every other square better in America, thought betting on sports meant betting on the team you thought had the best chance at winning. He didn't yet understand that sports betting was a science, not an art. One that had little to do with star players and rivalries and ephemeral ideas like who has heart and who wants it more. But that's how he liked to bet. And just like every other square better in America, he lost. Pretty much, but I know I had money back then. I know I had money in high school. Not like, you know, I mean, I had, say, maybe, you know, five, ten thousand dollars $10,000 saved up. So I would lose two, $300 a week, say. I think that would be like a pretty good estimate. And I lost, and then I started getting my friends because I was going to get a kickback. Joey's boss at the pizza place took some mercy on him. He made a pretty standard deal bookies would make with their customers. If Joey could recruit his friends to bet through the pizza joint, then Joey could get half of whatever they lost. This is way better money than the dollar tip I just got for driving 20 minutes to deliver a pizza. Joey kept betting, making the same stupid bets he was making before. But now, because his friends were also losing, he wasn't losing his ass every week anymore. Now he was making money. And he realized that for whatever reason, no matter what teams everyone else bet on, the bookies made all the money. And it was Joey who had all the headaches. I'd be like, this guy owes me money and I, I have to come out of pocket because that's how I am. I, you know, I, I'll pay other people's debts because that's the right thing to do. And I think that's a big reason why I got ahead. Part of Joey's deal with his boss was that when his friends lost, it was Joey who had to collect the money. And they didn't always want to pay, which meant that Joey was on the hook. He sought advice from his dad, who used to make a little book of his own before Joey was born. His dad told him that if he was taking on the headache of collecting bad debts, he was doing the hardest part already. What did he need the pizza shop for? He advised his son to go out on his own and become a bookie himself. I remember him telling you, if you could stomach rooting for the underdog and the under then you'll be fine. And I did. What his dad meant was that most people liked the favorites and the over. The over is a bet that the teams would collectively score more than some predetermined number of points. And they'd bet them no matter what the number was. Back then, it was way different. I mean, the market is so much sharper now. Now it's, that doesn't really matter. Contrarian views, you know, matter to a degree, but really not back then. Joey knew just where to find customers, too. He and his friend Paul were already running card games for kids at Washington Township High School. I was, uh, I guess, a, a junior at that point when I started driving senior. So at that point, I was already, I mean, I would have a deck of cards on me at all the parties. Why are you taking playing cards to parties? Because I, I would run games there. We would play AC Ducey. We would play even Rummy if it was that. We would play Spades, and we were always gambling. So I'd spend half the night not even chasing girls. I'm like at a, you know, little table till four in the morning hosting games or whatever. And that that was good too. Joey and Paul put out the word that they were going into business for themselves booking sports. Two teenage bookies looking to hang out a shingle. The word spread and they quickly had about 30 to 40 customers who wanted to bet with them. And from the very first game, they were off to the races. I remember the first Thursday night game. It was like San Fran versus the Giants. And we were booking, and I'm pretty sure we made like $13,000 on on the game. Like the first game we really made. (laughs) So like, you know, back then, at the age of 19 or or so, really, really good. Joey and Paul took that $13,000 win from their very first game and built their business. And it grew faster than they could have imagined. I mean, there was no social media at that point. So it all kind of breached from guys I knew from high school and parties and sports and, and that type of thing. Um, I always spoke to anybody I could, and I never really burned bridges. So basically, it just kind of blossomed like word of mouth at that point. Like, I mean, this guy, Joey's good, and it's fine. You know, he's, I'd never had a problem with him, and it, and it just kind of grew, and it grew and grew and grew. You know, I had grown men betting through me. I had many grown men betting through me 
even when I was 20, 21, which is odd. Like, I'm thinking, these guys are 40, 50 years old. Inevitably, Joey ended up with more customers than a teenage kid could handle. So he did what his boss at the pizza shop did for him. He recruited help. I would have guys that had 10 people under them or 20 people under them, and then I would do the same thing. Look, I can't meet another 20 people at this point. So here's the deal. You know, I'll give you this type of kickback and, and you handle your type of guys, which are called sub-agents. His sub-agents hustled hard. And within a couple of years, Joey had 150 to 200 customers betting through him. And they were losing plenty, which meant he was winning plenty. It seemed like Joey had discovered a golden goose. These people playing these huge parlays and the whole percents I had on them. And it was just favor, favor, favored. And it made me kind of want to dig, dig more. And we used to get away with murder back then. I mean, I, I only booked for maybe four or five years. And then kind of, I remember like 22 or so, I really just like turned it in. It became a headache. It grew fast. A lot of, I'm dealing with. 20-year-olds, basically that was my clients, you know, guys my age, but um, they didn't have money to, you know, it'd be like, they would lose 700 and they didn't have it. And it became like, oh, such a pain in the ass. I'd rather deal with professionals. You may think from watching movies that bookies collect debts with baseball bats and broken kneecaps, but that's not how it really works. I'm not saying those kind of guys aren't out there because they are. But the vast majority of people booking sports in America aren't gangsters. And when they get stiffed, they can't exactly take someone to small claims court to collect. So they have to resort to hassling, haggling, even begging to get paid. Yeah, it was the fighting, like, you know, chasing people down. Like, I mean, I had kids' dads pay me. It was like, I mean, half my people. And that's another reason why I feel like the street book will always be there because it was like, Hey, I lost 2000 this week. I paid you 700 You know, you have to wait on the rest. I mean, you know, what am I going to say? It's like, it is what it is. <laughs> and, and they get away with murder. But adding a lot of people up over time and, and me having to pay all the winners, it's like, hey, cool. I have all this money on paper, but my pocket is like, it's not that great. <laughs> I was probably making like, Five ten thousand a week, I'd say maybe average. Obviously, there was good and bad weeks, and then this guy came along who torched me, and it was uh, <laughs> it was a paid lesson. The guy who torched Joey was every bookie's nightmare: a wise guy, a sharp player, and he took Joey for twenty thousand dollars in a single week. I mean, I had a sizable bankroll at that point, but. I didn't want to endure anything. <laughs> like I was like, not a fun week for me. You know, I was depressed as shit. Like, do I want to do this? This guy's killing me. He's he's drowning out my whole book. So, I, you know, I caught on. I caught on quick, and I just said, like, I don't. I'd rather be a part of this. Kind of like now. Like, I'd rather rather be on your team than than the team I'm on right now. I can I can see where this is heading. You know, it's like. He's not unlucky. He's playing 60 games on a Saturday. Like, <laughs> But when you're young or whatever and you don't know what you're doing, you think like, oh, man, this guy's a donkey. I can't wait. And he's a good pay. This is it. This is the meal ticket. And it <laughs> turns out. Turns out you were the meal. Yeah, yeah, I'm the meal. <laughs> yep. Here's how a bookmaker is supposed to make money. They offer you a bet on a game. LSU versus Iowa in the Outback Bowl. When Joey bet this game in 2014, like everybody else, he knew that LSU was the better team. So to make the game more even, bookmakers were giving Iowa seven and a half points by kickoff. That seven and a half points is called the spread. In theory, it will make the game a 50-50 proposition. And hopefully, either side of the bet will be attractive. But the bookie is going to charge you a vig to bet with them. The VIG is the juice, the built-in tax the bookie is charging to take your action. So say you wanted to bet LSU and lay Iowa seven and a half points, you might have to bet $110 to win 100. That way, if the bookie has an equal number of bets on LSU as they do Iowa, they use the loser's money to pay the winners and they keep the extra 10%. I started off losing and it's like, unless you really 
understand the market and, and know what's going on and sit there or model all day or market analyze, then you're not going to win. I mean, it's just the bottom line. The juice is too strong. Of course, it's not always the case that a bookie will have an equal number of bets on both sides of a game. In fact, it's pretty rare for a bookmaker to have perfectly balanced action. A lot of the time, they're gambling against the customers. Like Joey's dad once counseled him, people love to play favorites, no matter the spread. Or in young Joey's case down in South Jersey, a lot of fans like to bet the Philadelphia Eagles, betting with their hearts and not their heads. It may not be the game you like, but what's your goal here? You want to root for Iowa? You want the money or you want to root for a team? Most people will choose the money. But if the numbers are right and the games really are coin tosses, then players are going to win around 50% of the time no matter which side they bet, leaving the bookie with the 10% juice over the long run. So in other words, like if you need to be 52.5% in order to be profitable at sports betting and you are only at 50%, well, that's how the book makes their profit. They have their vigorish, their edge, their house edge. And so if you need to hit 52.5%, you're only hitting 50%, you know, you're not going to be profitable. That's Captain Jack Andrews. And that's obviously not his real name. But he isn't hiding his identity from the police. He's hiding it from the bookies. He's a sharp sports better and an expert on the sports betting industry. So what we've seen is when you take all of the sporting events ever done and you compare it to the closing line, it's right around 50%. It's right around the coin toss probability for the market. Whereas the opening line is less efficient. It would probably be around 55%. So in other words, uh, you know, if you were to just bet the opening line, you could, you know, possibly be correct 55% of the time. Uh, whereas if you bet the closing line and bet, you know, either side, it's more of a coin flip. Whereas the opening line might be more 55-45. The hitch in the giddy up here is that the numbers aren't always right. And they often move. Sometimes the point spreads are off. Sometimes the handicappers who make the lines adjust them. Sometimes they make mistakes, or there's an injury that dramatically impacts a team's chances, or there's some other information out there that hasn't yet made its way to the line makers. And there are people out there who make it their business to know when a line is off, even by as little as a half a point, and pounce on it. As long as these players only play when their models or information say the point spreads are off, as long as they're beating that closing line, they should win more than 50% of the time and overcome the bookie's vig. These are the sharp players. Poll games are a huge deal because there's um, 40-something games now to choose from. So odds makers um, really have trouble like putting up the right numbers. So they start off at really low limits. And that's the same as any regular week of college football. The limits always start out low and they allow like people to shape the lines. The bigger bookmakers know who these players are and they respect their bets. When one of these players makes a bet with a large offshore bookmaker like Pinnacle or Chris Sports, the bookmaker realizes their numbers must be off in some way, and they adjust their lines accordingly. This is why the players are known as sharp, because they help sharpen the lines up for the bookies. Back in the 90s, Joey made money because he booked the squares. High school kids and their dads, degenerate gamblers, Eagles fans. He didn't make his own numbers. Like a lot of bookies, he copied them from somewhere else. And he definitely didn't have any sharp players sharpening his lines for him. He didn't always know what kind of moves were happening in the market until it was too late. Independent, small-time bookies like Joey were sitting ducks for wise guys. And that's just what happened to him that week he lost $20,000 to his mysterious new customer. He was kind of doing what, you know, I do now. Basically, you know, not my level wasn't like that back then, but in hindsight, it was kind of, that was the introduction to it all. <laughs> Once Joey figured out what was going on, he took stock of his life, and he wondered if he should give booking sports a break. The financial risk he was taking aside, it also happened to be illegal. None of my family really had money or, or really did anything illegal to that point, and it was kind of just like, it's hard to go to parties and say, family parties and with no education and, you know, like an old Italian family, like, oh, well, 
your cousin's a teacher. What are you doing? You know, I'm like, Oh, you know, I'm a bookie or I'm a better. It's like, it's just so frowned upon. So I always, I always wanted to be into something else so I could use that kind of as a cop out, whether it be real estate, I bought a pool hall or a tattoo shops. Did you ever get in trouble when you were booking? No, because, uh, I don't think it was that long. I think it was just like bigger fish to fry. I wasn't out there hitting people with bats or anything like that. So, you know, I kind of played my cards right. But despite investing in real estate or owning his own businesses, Joey had no appetite for the life of a small business owner or a landlord. If he wasn't going to book sports bets anymore, he'd start betting again. Only this time, he was armed with the knowledge he gained on the other side of the counter. He wouldn't be a sucker like most of the guys who used to bet with him. He figured after watching so many guys lose for so many years, he had a pretty good idea how to win. And winning when you were betting against the bookie felt good. That was a big thing. I'm like, look, you know, this challenges me more. I always like to challenge myself. And it felt great, man. And even when I was betting and I had money on the games from booking, it was like, man, I won in my game. I may have had, whatever, say 3000 on the Browns booking, but I bet the Jets for 1500 I want to prove myself right. Like, oh, I'm great. I'm Something about that always originated with me. Like, I, you know, it feels good to win your own game. You feel like, yep, I was right. I nailed it right on the head, and that is that. And bookmaking is like, I got forced into taking the Browns. I didn't really like the team, but I'll take the 110. Joey knew that a lot of local bookies were getting their numbers from odds printed in the newspaper. So if he went online to one of the few websites in those days that posted the point spreads from around the world, he could see when the line had moved from where it started. I would literally go down and get a point on each game. I mean, at that point, they were moving. So that still stands good to this day, that if you 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 beat the closing line, you give me a point on the NFL board, then uh, you'll come out ahead. That was another trick we used to do. We used to, I used to have two guys that I would play both sides with and I'd say look if I give you the whole NBA board every single night and I played every single game not missing one game would you cut me a deal and I would go to another guy and I would say the same pitch and I would play him the other side what Joey means is that for most of the games he would bet he would win at one bookie and lose at the other bookie and he'd only lose the juice which he had bargained for at a discount but every now and again a game's result would fall right in between the two bookies' point spreads, and he would win both bets. That's called a middle, and it was worth far more than the juice he was paying on all the other games. I mean, people are hip to this stuff now, but then, it, you know, no one knew anything. Every So many people lost in gambling back then that it didn't affect them, and it wasn't like it is today. It was like, oh, this guy's just getting lucky, or they really didn't even have to worry because... Their clients were just, you know, absolute losers, and I saw it. So I was kind of just like a sniper at that point. More after this. Add a little excitement to your sports-watching experience by betting on all the action on FanDuel Sportsbook this football season. There's a reason why FanDuel is America's number one sportsbook. Their app is simple to use. They've got great odds on all different betting markets, unique, fun bet types like same-game parlay, and exclusive always-on promotions to let you get more action out of every game day. And if you win, they even get you your winnings safely in as little as 24 hours. Right now, FanDuel is letting you place your first bet risk-free up to $1,000. Just place a bet on any game, and FanDuel will refund you up to $1,000 back if you don't win your first bet. Seriously, there's no strings attached. Just place any bet you want. If you win, you keep the cash. If you lose, you'll get your entire bet up to $1,000 back in site credit. And one thing I love about FanDuel is that they offer live lines on the games, but it's a double-edged sword. Last night during Monday Night Football, I picked up Cleveland at plus 700 when they were down to the Ravens by two touchdowns just to make the game a little more interesting to watch. And I got what I bargained for because Cleveland came back, only to have my heart stomped on by Lamar Jackson in the final minute. Luckily, FanDuel has NBA lines up now for the regular season, and I can win my $40 back by betting on the greatest basketball team in history, the New York City Knickerbockers, to win more than 21 and a half games this season. That's easy money. This is the year. Also, don't forget to check out FanDuel's same-game parlays as well. 
If you've never tried FanDuel Sportsbook, what are you waiting for? Download the FanDuel Sportsbook app to get started and be sure to sign up with promo code GAMBLERS so they know I sent you. That's FanDuel Sportsbook promo code GAMBLERS. Must be 21 plus and present in New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Illinois, West Virginia, Indiana, Colorado, Iowa, Tennessee. First online real money wager only. Site credit is non-withdrawable and expires in 14 days. Restrictions apply. See sportsbook.fanduel.com for details. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-522-4700 in Colorado, 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa, 1-800-9-WITH-IT in Indiana, 1-800-GAMBLER in New Jersey, Pennsylvania, and Illinois, Tennessee Redline 1-800-889-9789, or visit www.1800gambler.net in West Virginia. Once Joey realized he could beat the bookies, he hired people to run his businesses for him, and he spent his every waking hour doing research and building his own models, creating his own point spreads, trying to find mistakes in the sports betting marketplace. It literally consumed like everything. Once, once I stopped really doing that business or I hired people for the tattoo shops, I, would re- I wouldn't even go in at that point. You know, it was just, I guess it was around 2004, 2005 started like, I had the multiple monitors set up and I was down there like crazy all till two in the morning, trying to put together ratings for the next day. And I'd be up early trying to catch the market, sleep in. Soon he was making serious money. So he moved from working on his laptop at the counter of his pool hall to hiring a staff and operating out of a real office. When I first began, it was more about the numbers or you want to call like, the steam, you know, or the info or just analyzing the market and seeing that certain indicators would go in a certain direction. And I knew the market was going to go. So I picked up on that and I took advantage of either weak bookies or weak shops. So that was part of my game. And and it still is today. I would never, I would never leave that. But also a big part of my game was I was obsessed with handicap because it was like, a personal thing and, and being an originator and, and having my own work and doing my own work and being proud that it was my works. And that became like the bigger part of my game. There are two types of sharp sports bettors. The steam players are the ones who watch all the numbers, the various prices and point spreads offered by sports books around the world. And they try to guess which direction the market is headed. They're a lot like day traders in a way. And a lot of Steam players could give a shit about the actual teams and players and games. They're just analyzing the numbers. The other type of sharp players are handicappers. These are the players who come up with their own models for how a particular game should play out, and they create their own prices and point spreads for the games. When the point spreads and prices differ from the bookmakers, they bet the side where they think the bookmaker's off. If their models are better than the bookmakers, they'll win. It's a big if. But for handicappers who are consistently better than the bookies, they earn the bookmaker's respect, and they can make the lines move with their bets. That's why they're called originators. While Steam players are going to make money, originators make money and get the pride of knowing their work was better than the books. Joey bet plenty of Steam, but he wanted to be an originator, especially when it came to his best sport, college football. He didn't just want the money. He wanted to beat the bookies at their own game. He wanted to be the best. I wanted to be great at it. I wanted to get the best of the number. Originators are very rare. In fact, I would say good originators, ones that definitely have an edge, are extremely rare. That's Captain Jack again. Probably if we go with the assumption that only the top five percentile of sports bettors actually win long term, I would say that it's probably... of that 5% are people that can win just based on originating their own line. Joey's drive to be seen and respected by his peers as an originator pushed him to try to handicap every sport, which was simply too much work and probably impossible for anyone. And then I came to realize, look, football is my best sport. It's I'm the most passionate about it. And I'd rather hone in more on that than try and do hockey, college basketball, baseball. It's unrealistic, especially, you know, without hundreds of models and algorithms and 
programs were for you to do all that. And, and back then I had none of that, you know, I, so I was like trying to do everything by myself and it's just too hard. I guess he kind of had a sense that I a little bit knew what I was doing, like kind of knew a little bit of the game, especially like in football. That's Nick Toronto, who had started betting with Joey when Nick was 18 years old, back when Joey was still a bookie. He and Joey were virtually strangers, only voices on the other end of the phone. But Joey sensed something in Nick, and he encouraged him to stop betting against him and come work for him instead. <laughs> he knew he knew depth charts then. I mean, his his spreadsheets, you go back to like 2012, 2010 in that range were insane. I mean, he tracked everything. He tracked absolutely everything. I had no idea that half the stuff even existed. I mean, it's weird because now a lot of the info that he tracked then is just readily available, you know, to anyone. He had ways of getting it kind of, I guess, a little bit before anyone else. That's why he was good at it. Joey asked Nick to compile data that Joey would use for handicapping college football games. And it was no simple task. Like he'd have me scroll through, you know, go through schedules when seasons were coming out. Like we'd start working on football season in like April. You know, we'd look at the back-to-backs, who's traveling, stuff like that. He'd really dive into the schedule as soon as it came out. Points per play was a really big one. I remember diving into points per play. Um, you know, he had several different websites. He even had me going on newspapers. I'd have to go into, he had me looking into local newspapers websites and trying to read articles just to get a little bit of a tip if this guy was playing if this guy was out joey could win but there seemed to be a ceiling on how much he could win for one thing every book he had a limit nobody was going to let him just bid an unlimited amount of money they all had a set amount of risk they were willing to take on and from one out to the next that number could be anything from five hundred dollars to five thousand dollars a game Not only that, but Joey learned pretty quick that when you're sharp, bookies don't want your action at all. So in order for him to get bets down, he'd have to continuously find new bookies to bet with. At first, he'd find bookies who'd never heard of him. But when that became impossible, he'd have to bet through partners and share his work with other gamblers who would make bets and split the action with him. But then Joey found that he could always get a bet with the offshore bookmakers, most of whom were headquartered in Costa Rica where a number of former American illegal bookmakers had decamped in the early days of the internet to set up legal shops, take bets online, and escape the long arm of the American justice system. And they don't care if you're sharp because they know what to do with the info. So to them, it's like, I'll take Joey's hit at 5K or 10K, and I I have a good idea of where the market's going at that point. Offshore bookmakers were doing tons of business, so they had volume. And they could afford to take a five-figure bet from Joey, even though they knew he was sharp. Still, they'd only let him bet once, and they'd move the line based on his action, which meant they assumed his work was probably better than their own work, and they should adjust accordingly. And once they catch on to you, you know, they'll mark you as a hot account or whatever and move off you and use your info. The big problem was that Joey wanted to bet more and more and more. And at $10,000 a pop, he'd be betting sometimes hundreds of thousands of dollars in a single weekend. That meant figuring out a way to move that money between his bank and these offshore banks, sometimes several times a month. Now that wasn't going to fly. He needed credit. But to get that, he needed to build relationships with the big-time bookmakers in Costa Rica. Once I started going to... Costa Rica, which was, I think, 2008 or so, I started going. You know, the original trips were kind of party and <laughs> less business. Now my trips are all business and no party. Back then, I was still accumulating accounts through people that I would beat. Like somebody would get me the account or book me, and then I'd beat them, and they'd be like, What the hell are you doing? How are you winning? And I'd kind of tell them, like, Look, I, you know, I'm good at this. I do it all day. We run an office come join the team. And that's how you would kind of accumulate accounts. You would get bookies, bookies that you beat. Exactly. Like, what are you doing that you're kicking me or this guy's ass? And I would kind of give them the rundown. Like there was always a speech or a, or a hook to these guys and they would like it. And that's how I modeled my business now as I basically explained to people, I mean, you're investing in me. So look at me as a hedge fund. Between Joey's credit at the big offshore bookmakers 
and his access to lots of local independent bookies through betting partners around the United States, he could really wreak havoc. He learned that he could move the market where he wanted it, which meant he could take down even bigger scores. I think Chris was taking maybe 2,000 on bowl games and the same probably with Pinnacle. I know that's like most of their openers, even to today. So I think a couple, we hit it maybe twice. When Joey and his team initially looked at the 2014 Outback Bowl a couple of weeks before the game, they liked Iowa. But the opening spread was seven points, which wasn't high enough in their eyes. They wanted more points before they made the bet because they thought there was a strong chance that LSU could win by exactly seven points. So Joey had an idea. He made a $2,000 bet on LSU at Pinnacle and Chris Sports, the two market leaders, even though that wasn't the side he liked. His hope was that they would respect bets coming from such an established figure, and they'd adjust their lines upward so he could eventually get what he actually wanted, a better number on Iowa. You know, you want to keep that number up throughout the three-week process. So I just didn't want to lose the number, and I'm not going to take the plus seven or plus seven and a half for low limits. You know, not when we feel strong about a game. I mean, it's it's almost like a waste. It's kind of like timing, and it's kind of like a catch-22. Like, you get the better numbers, you get the better ROI early in the week or early in the bowl season, but you don't get the announce. Almost instantly. The line moved to seven and a half at one book and eight at another. This was the number Joey wanted, but he couldn't bet it yet because the limits on games were going to stay low until game day came around. He had to monitor the lines, and anytime they moved back to seven, bet LSU for a grand or two to make them go back up. They call this phonying a game or faking the number, and it was an important part of Joey's arsenal. The play here was to get Iowa at plus seven and a half or plus eight for a big number, maybe 50 or 60 grand, whatever he could get down, honestly, sky's the limit. But that would have to wait. The bottom line was just keep it at seven and a half until limits were raised, even if it caught, you know, we don't want to spend too much money on the fakes. Then it's like you're wasting a lot of juice, you know? It's like, I don't want to spend 20,000 to keep the fakes up and then take 30 back or, or 50 back, it's like, that's a lot of juice to be spending. When game day arrived, the number was still sitting at seven and a half. It had cost him roughly $10,000 in phony bets on LSU minus seven to keep it there. But now he had his opportunity to bet the maximum. That's when I pretty much unloaded all my accounts and got what I could from the Chris and Pinnacles. In addition to betting the maximum with Pinnacle and Chris, he was betting with literally hundreds of independent bookies all over America through his army of betting partners. He's getting bets down with bartenders, frat boys, office pools, and hundreds of other bookies he's never even met. Through gamblers, he's maybe only met once or twice on the phone or online. And his bets range anywhere from $100 to $1,000. Right. And it adds up. That's why, yeah, the accounts are so important. I mean, say I have 10 accounts for $1,000. I mean, that's 10000 right there. You know, it's very easy. Joey told his team to hit the game hard, and they started firing off bets through all the accounts. When all was said and done and the game kicked off, Joey was sitting on $70,000 on Iowa plus seven and a half. He isn't sure how it happened, but he felt like he had gotten a little too far over his skis. At that time, I was that was like a huge bet for me. You know, I really kind of let it all hang out, and that's not really like the way I do things. By 2015, the year after the Outback Bowl, Joey Fortuna was 34 years old, married, and had a kid. His sports betting had blossomed fully into a business with employees and nearly a thousand betting partners. He was known throughout the industry as a top player, a wise guy, and someone whose work was especially sharp with college football. But in addition to spending time working on handicapping and modeling, he now had to spend an inordinate amount of time hustling up and keeping new partners. Every Monday is, oh, we lost seven accounts, we gained five, and 
<laughs> that type of thing. So it's it's a lot to keep up with. It really is. The accounting is a pain in the ass. I hate Mondays. I'll forever hate Mondays. And when I get a partner, I, I try to fly to their city during the summer when I'm losing at baseball or not playing baseball and kind of just like, you know, wine and dine them, say what's up, show my face and uh, build a relationship because so much is online. It's like kind of still goofy to me, you know? Joey had a number of betting partners on the West Coast, especially in Las Vegas. His Vegas partners weren't betting with illegal bookmakers or offshore like his other partners were. They were able to make bets with large legal bookmakers in the casinos. And Joey loved his trips to Vegas to visit with them. I always liked Vegas. I was going and I always thought it was like a hip kind of space. I liked the nightlife aspect, uh, the expensive dinners and, and whatever, the clubs and stuff. So I figured I have a, a good time when friends visited. I mean, obviously at this point, I don't know, like maybe it was becoming a pro. I thought like I would be able to really flourish out there at that point and uh, really make connects. He moved his family from New Jersey to Las Vegas to try to see if the life of a professional sports better would be somewhat easier in a state with legal bookmaking. But it didn't turn out like he had hoped. I mean, I hated to run down to the Mirage and try to bet a game and you walk in the sports book and the number's gone. Obviously, pros just don't take any number. If I went down looking for a six, I wanted that six and that was the mark and now it's five and a half or five, I'm not going to take it. Not only was Vegas a bit of a drag, the casinos also started drastically limiting the amount of money he could bet. This was the unfortunate reality of being a sports better in Las Vegas. The old days of guys like Nick the Greek and Lim Banker betting suitcases full of money at the Stardust were long gone. The sports books that remained were more corporate, less risk-averse, and they had ground the city's professional sports bettors into dust. I joined this group called a Tuesday group and I felt like, oh, you know, these are the guys and turns out they really weren't. I mean, there were guys been like a hundred dollars in there and I'm like, how are these guys pros? But word on the street was that something big was brewing. Three years before in 2012, the New Jersey legislature had legalized sports betting. And the state was battling the federal government for the right to let New Jersey join Nevada in licensing and regulating sports books. The federal government had prohibited states from having sports betting under a 1992 law called the Professional and Amateur Sports Protection Act. New Jersey argued that the law was unconstitutional. And the word was, the Supreme Court was going to take the case. And the bookmakers were making New Jersey the favorite to win. We expect those rules to be enacted this fall, in October and November and for sports gambling to come here to Atlantic City uh, to further enhance the experience of people who want to come here, visit here, gamble here, and enjoy time here. Sure enough, the favorites won. By 2018, sports betting was everywhere in New Jersey, at the casinos in Atlantic City, at the Monmouth Park racetrack near Manhattan, and even online on an ever-growing number of mobile apps. On the face of it, it looked like a bonanza, a dream come true for a professional sports better. But according to Captain Jack, it was more like a nightmare. The problem is they all want to deal to the same segment of betters. And that's not the sharp betters. They want to deal to the recreational betters. They want to deal to the people that just don't know any better, that are basically walking into the buzzsaw because uh, they don't know that sports betting is beatable if they just take a little bit more time and effort to uh, lose less. They're willing to just go about it as if it was a lottery ticket. And as a result, it's just not good for the player. Now, for someone who's a sharp better, it's pure hell because what happens is we go in there and we start to bet and we, you know, maybe win a little bit. But moreover, the casino, the sportsbook operator sees that we have closing line value. We have at least knowledge of what we're doing and they quickly limit those accounts. They, they say, okay, you can bet all you want up to $12 on this game. Yeah, but, you know, after the disappointment in Vegas, it was like, I kind of figured, you know, um, I kind of know where the sharp better stands at this point. So when Jersey first opened, you opened up accounts, you showed up and tried to bet at all, all the spots, and one by one, they barred you. Yeah, eventually, one by one, you know, some quicker than other points bet was quick to get rid of me and... I remember I went to Top Golf in, in Jersey and 
points bet had a stand out there and and they were like, oh, do you bet? Here's a hat. And I'm like, yeah, I bet. And they were like, well, sign up for points bet. I said, yeah, I have an account. You won't let me bet. Oh, no, 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 no. I'll talk to my boss. What do you want to bet a game? I said, what's your max bet? You're claiming 10,000, right? Oh, yeah, we'll take 10,000. Okay, perfect. Here's your card. Here's my number. Basically, they said, and I still have the text, uh, you're too good of a better, um, and we can't we can't accept that action anymore. And and. That was pretty much that. So it's 10,000 if you lose and it's nothing if you win at all. James Harrison set to kick it off. Iowa did win the toss to defer their option here to the second half to see if they can get anything going. And they cannot. No return. Iowa didn't even score in the first half. So I felt awful about the play already. They looked totally out of class and dominated. Going into halftime, I was like, I don't know what to do at this point. Then Iowa came out and scored in the third quarter. As Jennings throws to Tarr, it's intercepted. Back the other way is Loudermilk with space. John Loudermilk inside the 30. Loudermilk inside the 10. Touchdown! Iowa back in it. That wound up being the only points of the third quarter. So now I'm thinking like, man, this seven is, you know, really going to come into play. It was 14-7 at that point. You know, it was like a defensive game. Next score probably mattered. Because Joey had Iowa plus seven and a half, he was currently winning the bet by a half a point. And in the fourth quarter, with just over five minutes left in the game, Iowa was driving down the field and had a fourth down and one on LSU's 16-yard line. If Iowa could score here, they would tie the game. They'll go for it on fourth and one, and they'll boot again. It's Bethard rolling and throwing, and it's intercepted by Lawson. So, Iowa blew it. But Joey wasn't completely out of it. He was still covering the spread by a half point. And if Iowa's defense could get a stop, or if LSU could grind the clock and take their seven-point win, Joey would be fine, as long as LSU didn't score any more points. LSU fans letting their presence be known. And so is Hill, again into the secondary. This is like the opening drive of the game. Easy now. No need to get so many yards. A simple first down and run out the clock. Take the seven-point win. Don't be greedy. Third and six. They will run it. It is Hill to the right. Big first down. Hill to the 20. Hill to the 10. The MVP is in the end zone for LSU. Touchdown, Tigers. I thought all hope was lost. I was miserable about it, losing like that so close. And I just remember being miserable. I, I was angry. I picked up a sword and like, you know, fake swung it. Everybody was like, what the heck? Oh, yeah. There was a, oh, that's right. I forgot about that. Yeah, there was there was a sword on the wall or something. <laughs> he's he's calmed down over the years, but he was definitely a nut job way back in the day. So, <laughs> so down 14, Iowa in desperate need of a big play. And Jordan Cotton trying to get one. Oh, look at this. Hey, there goes Cotton. Suddenly, Iowa had the ball on the five-yard line, and Joey was right back in it. I'm thinking like, man, this is great. You know, I'm going to get the seven on LSU if they punch it in, and I'm going to hit the true side with the eight on Iowa. Iowa had no hope in winning this game. They need to score here, then get the ball back after an onside kick, and then score again. But look, who gives a fuck about the Iowa Hawkeyes? This story is about Joey Fortuna. And for Joey... All he needed was a single touchdown. But then, this happened. After the longest kickoff return in Outback Bowl history, can Iowa make it six? That third, hand as he threw, empty hand came through. That's a live ball, and LSU is on it. For most people watching the game, this probably seemed like pointless farce at the end of a foregone conclusion. But for the gamblers, this was everything. The point spread hung in the balance. And then this happened. It was an incomplete pass. Second and goal from the four yard line. Please put 146 on the clock. Just thinking, like, please let this end. You know, the emotional swings of, of both of it was just a lot. <laughs> it took years off my life, 100%. It was a really big game, yeah. And then this happened. 
And the backup quarterback, Beathard, in for the injured Rudolph. Watching, going to the corner. It's caught for the touchdown by Cavante Martin Manley. In the end, the Hawkeyes lost the Outback Bowl to LSU 21-14. But again, who cares? Another bowl win for LSU? What was really cool about the 2014 Outback Bowl was that Joey Fortuna won $70,000 after phonying the game for a half point. His fake bets on LSU all pushed at minus seven, so he got his money back. And his bets on Iowa all covered. It was the best possible outcome and a brilliant score. Today, Joey Fortuna is still a major player, but he isn't hopeful about the future. It's not going back to how it was, so that's for sure, which was, I guess, the good days is what they say, or I got a small glimpse of, so it only seems like it's going to get worse. It might be hard to understand why so many pro sports gamblers feel all this doom and gloom. By some estimates, Americans wager more than $150 billion a year on sports. But that money belongs to major corporations, who took it from suckers betting terrible numbers on close-your-eyes-and-pray parlays. That's the American market. And every year, wise guys like Joey Fortuna find it gets tougher and tougher to earn. You know, losing week, you're like, God, I need to find a job. (laughs) Maybe Joey Fortuna will get a straight job. Maybe he'll go back to betting favorites and overs like every other hump in America. But I think I'd lay you the points on that one. No matter how bad it gets for the wise guys, there's always another football season right around the corner. Gamblers was written and reported by me, David Hill. The show was produced by Craig Horlbeck, Noah Malale, and Isaac Lee. Matt Dollinger was our story editor. The sound design was done by Isaac Lee. Thank you to fact checker Daniel Chin, as well as copy chief Craig Gaines. The logo for the podcast was designed by Ringer Art Director David Shoemaker. Special thanks to Bill Simmons, Sean Fennessy, and Juliet Littman. Thanks to everyone who spoke to us for this podcast, and most importantly, thank you for listening. <laughs>